this entire week has been all about glorifying God. And everything that's happened and the heart of everyone who's been involved has been all about giving God the glory for everything that he's done and everything that he will do in your life if you want him to. But the really cool thing about God is that he doesn't always decide that he's going to be the one that speaks to everyone personally. And we don't all hear God's voice audibly. But God doesn't need us, but he's happy to use us. And if you're a willing servant of God, he will use you in any way. And so tonight, just before John talks, I would just like to express the gratitude of the SAM team, and I'm sure of many of you fellow college family members out here, um, to John. He's such a willing and humble servant of God. And we have a parcel for him, which we won't look at now, but we've got it for him just to express a small portion of our gratitude. But there is also a card in here, which is where you may express your gratitude at the end of the meeting, just down the front here, if you want. There'll be pens and time available for that. So, John, on behalf of everyone, I'd like to say thank you. Thank you, Carly. Thank you so much. Um, This is the 10th meeting I've taken since Monday. And I have a, a text from the Bible for you. Blessed are those that endure unto the end, for the same shall be saved. But seriously, I, I'm just constantly blown away by the talent in this place. Uh, that drama just now, your items and your, your band and your choir and everything. This is actually the third time... I have been the speaker for Festival of Faith here at Avondale. The first time was uh, 24 years ago. And there is a difference. When I took it 24 years ago, when your parents were here, um, uh, (laughs) it was run by the faculty and there were students sort of running around. When I took it in 2001... It was about 50-50, uh, but this, this time it's just the students. I mean, Dr. Wayne, you, you do a fantastic job. You're always there to support, but it's the students that have done it. And it's just, just so incredible, and, and I thank you for it. Uh, you have lifted my soul, and uh, I think I hate to use this postmodern expression, but I think we have been on a bit of a spiritual journey this week. A few years ago, I uh, caught a jet to uh, fly from Melbourne to Perth. And uh, I've had this desire and dream to uh, fly business class, but never <laughs> really managed to do it. And it was a 767, and I found my seat, and there was a gentleman sitting there in front of me with a skull cap. And I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. And I would love to get hold of Mr. Boeing and ask him why two seats for two people who have four arms have three armrests. <laughs> well, this gentleman didn't look at me. He didn't make any eye contact. I had to clamber over him because I, my, I always have a window seat in, in my profile. And I sat down. And uh, no hello, no nothing. And I try and talk to my fellow passengers because we were going to spend the next four hours together. And uh, they brought his meal early. By the way, he sat there 
His arms are on the seat rests and he gave me not one millimetre. So I loved him. And uh, <laughs> when it came for the meal, I uh, noticed that it was a kosher meal. And as he started, I thought, well, blow this. I'm going to start a conversation. I said, oh, you're Jewish. Really brilliant start. <laughs> and he turned to me. I have never sat next to such an aggressive passenger. He said, what do you think of the Jews? Well, I was a bit surprised actually. And I, I said to him, it really blew him out of the water. I said to him, I believe that the Jews are the most talented people who have ever walked the face of this earth because God ordained it. So he was so surprised, he gave me half of his armrest. <laughs> <laughs> and I started to talk to him, and uh, I, I, I said, I'm a Christian. He said, oh. He said, why would you bother with Jesus Christ? And I said, well, that's a very good question, and I'm glad you've asked it. And I reached for my Bible, which I always carry with me, and I saw him sort of gulp in the middle of something kosher. And I said, I'm going to take the favorite book of the Jews. He said, what's the favorite book of the Jews? I said, it's the book of Isaiah, isn't it? He said, yes, we do like it. And I said, I'm going to show you... I'm going to prove to you that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, then you are still waiting for him after all these years, but I'm going to take your favorite book, and I worked through the book of Isaiah, particularly when you get to 50, chapter 53. Then I went to some of the minor prophets, and every now and again he'd say, oh, I have to talk to my rabbi. I said, is he on the plane? You know. Uh, he got more and more uncomfortable. And when we got, got off the... the uh, uh, I gave him my card and he started to chew some uh, chewing gum. By this time I was sort of warming to him a little bit and I said, uh, how do you know that hasn't got pig's fat in it? And uh, <laughs> he, he, immediately, he immediately took out the packet and showed me that it was made in Tel Aviv. And... Uh, when the plane landed, I tell you, we were still taxiing and he was out of his seat towards the door. And uh, I noticed that my card was still there, so I thought I'm not going to waste it. So I picked it up, was about to put it in my wallet and discovered that he had folded his chewing gum in it. <laughs> and I didn't keep it. And you know, in the 21st century... The antipathy of the Pharisees and the Orthodox Jews to Jesus Christ is just as strong as it was in the days of Jesus. If you were upset with somebody, how far would you be prepared to walk to confront them? Kilometre? I guess I'd walk a kilometre from here to the college gates if I was really upset with somebody and wanted to confront them. After that, I think I'd send them a nasty text message. <laughs> but the Pharisees 
and the doctors of law were so mad at Christ, and this is fairly early in his ministry, that they walked a whole 160 kilometers from Jerusalem to Capernaum just to confront him. And all the way, they are discussing, I have no doubt, amongst themselves, what are we going to say to this guy? How are we going to trap him? What's the best way to get stuck into him? And it was absolutely amazing. Because when they got to Jesus, they said the most incredible thing. They blurted it out. Why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? Hello? You see, a respectable rabbi, before he ate, would have seven bowls of water and seven clean towels. And each bowl of water was theoretically purer than the one before, and they'd wash their hands all the way through. Pity help their wives. They had come all that way. And I'm picking the story up from Matthew chapter 15. It seems incredible, but it's true. Some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Christ, I suspect, knew they were coming. He was feeling pressure, and those who just say, as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, he had no human emotions. He got stirred up very, very quickly because he immediately said to them, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. Something had happened in that synagogue at Capernaum or Jerusalem or somewhere that had really triggered Christ's anger. It was a practice called Corbin. Corbin simply means temple treasury. You see, the Jews had expanded the Ten Commandments until they had 613. And one of these commandments said, if a young man at home is having a row with his mother and father and he's fed up with it, all he has to do is to stand up and say one word, Corbin, and from that moment, his parents' assets were frozen. And he had the use of them until he died. On the condition that when he died, the land and any money that was left over had to go to the temple treasury. I'll tell you what, I wish that was around when I was 15. I would have been tempted to try it. And Christ was onto it. He said, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me as a gift devoted to God, thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition, you hypocrites. And then he did, he knew what to trigger against the Pharisees, quote the book of Isaiah against them. He said, these people honor me with their lips. But their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are about the rules taught by men. And a crowd had gathered. The Pharisees are feeling a bit awkward. And Jesus said, listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. It's what comes out of his mouth that makes him unclean. And he sort of stormed away. 
And the disciples came to him, I love this. Do you know that the Pharisees were upset just now when they heard this? He replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into the pit. And dear old Peter, who always jumped up first, he said, will you explain that to us? And you know what Jesus said? It's in the Bible here. Are you still so dull? He said. I'm reading it. Are you still so dull, Jesus asked them. He's really stirred now. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? We're getting a bit biological here. (laughs) But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder. He's looking right at the Pharisees. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean, for eating unwashed hand, with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. And he got up and he left. Finished. And he walked off. The disciples followed him. How far did he walk? Well, I measured it tonight. It was 140 kilometers. The disciples followed him. Now, in those days... A leader or the teacher or the master would quite often walk in front by themselves because people said they needed time to think and to meditate. And I can just see as they walked along, the disciples were wandering along behind. And they says, I wonder whether he's okay. That was quite an outburst. I wonder whether the strain starting to tell on him. There is no record in my Bible of Christ saying anything to them in that 140 kilometers would have taken a few days to do it but what was happening is very interesting because Christ was teaching them a lesson he was leading them out of the land of Israel and it wasn't long before they crossed into heathen lands across the border and they no longer saw synagogues They could no longer converse in their own language. They were strange people with strange clothes and strange belief. Instead of a synagogue, they would see a grove. And in those groves were the phallic symbols of very base religions. And the deeper they went in, they were going into the darkest land in the world. And they walked up towards the city of Tyre. And they didn't realize that a momentous intersection was about to take place with a heathen heathen woman. Christ just had this amazing ability to find the right person at the right time. They got to the house. And Christ, we're told, was very tired. He wanted to rest. You see, there was a human side to him. And he often just had to go away and meditate. And he said, I just want to rest. But 12 men, 13 men, walking in in strange clothes, speaking strange language in a different city far away from home would attract attention. And somebody said something, and somebody said something to somebody else, and a woman heard 
that this mysterious healer from south of the border was in town and she had a little girl and that girl we're told had a demon was tormented by an evil spirit and she was desperate to have her little girl healed you've got to have a sick child to know how desperate and that you will go to the ends of the earth to have that child healed healed when we lived in uh, Fiji I used to go into the little town of Corobo, just near the Fulton College. And every time I went in there, I met a little man, and my family will know who I'm referring to, the Corobo Taylor. And he had a boy who had physical and mental issues. And that boy was growing up into a man, but the little Corobo Taylor, every time he saw me, he would plead with me to do something. He wanted me to talk to people. He wanted me to find the doctors. He wanted me to get him to another country, but no country would ever give this little boy, or he was an adult by now, a passport to go and get treatment. And it was agonizing. Every time I went into Corvo, that little Corvo teller was waiting for me. And this woman, she heard that this man was here. She was out of her house, bounding down the street, and we meet Christ. It was amazing. She came out and she cried, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. This is a most incredible encounter because if Christ doesn't actually call her a dog, it's as close as you can get to it. Now, I love dogs. We've got a little dog who's as deaf as a post, but she's a tiny little thing and she loves us. I want to show you a dog. Yeah, well, you can go, oh, and all your rest. You only, haven't heard the story yet. That lady is Leona Hemsley. She was not a very happy lady. And uh, she was very, very rich. Couldn't keep servants because she had a habit of beating them. And that's her little dog. Do you know what the dog's name was? I love it. Trouble. <laughs> it was so spoilt, it would bite the hand of anybody except her mistress. And when she died, the mistress... She left $12 million to the dog. Would you, if Leona Hemsley left that sort of money to me, to be a dog, you know what my reaction would be? I don't know whether the dog's still alive or not. But that's not the sort of dog that Christ was referring to. In the Bible, there is not one good word in the Bible about a dog. If you've been to third world countries and you've seen dogs wandering around in a pitiful state, this is what you see. And wherever I've lived in a third world country, dogs are things you throw rocks at. 
Yeah, that got you going, didn't it? Let's pick up the story. She cried out, Lord, son of David. How she knew that he was Christ. I don't know what her connection was, or maybe she was inspired to call him Lord, son of David. Have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession, and Jesus ignored her. Maybe he was walking. I suspect they'd come to a halt. He just ignored her and looked away. And the disciples were looking for a cue. They did not like this place. They did not like being taken out of Israel. What were we doing here? Here is a little glimpse. He is ignoring this heathen pest. So his disciples sort of came to him and urged him. They said, send her away for she's bugging us as well. She's crying out to her, after us. And then Jesus says in a lofty sort of a voice, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And the disciples think, good on you, master. We've been waiting days for you to say something like that. Get rid of her. And the woman comes running around because she's heard Christ speak and she kneels in front of him. She's pleading, Lord, help me, she said. And then he said, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said. She would have been a good lawyer, a good debater. Why was she a quick thinker? This was her first, only, and last opportunity she was going to get. And she said, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And she looked at Christ, and his face just broke into a smile. And everybody realized he'd been testing her. And he said, woman, you have great faith. Go home, your little girl is healed. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. It is not often Christ gives such a compliment. You have great faith. If I was to ask you, what is the great faith text in the Bible, what would you say? Come on, theology students. Mutter, 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 holy, holy, mutter, mutter, yeah. <laughs> I think you were saying Hebrews 11, chapter 1. Let me help you remember it. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of not, the things not seen. You see, there was a college student here once who had to write an essay on faith, and he wrote on the first page, now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Then he had 10 blank pages, and on the last page he wrote, and the evidence of things not seen. And, <laughs> I, understand he became a conference president, actually. But <laughs> that text, in the next couple of minutes, I'm going to make come alive for you. Because when the translators tried to translate the New Testament out of the Greek, they couldn't understand the word one or two words that were in that text. 
And that was the word hypostasis. Now, the other night I impressed you with my knowledge of Greek, and I said I'd just given you half of it. Here's the other half coming up. They didn't know what hypostasis meant. And because of that, all they could put in our faith is the substance, the thingamabob, the whatever it is. I'm not sure of the word, I'll just put substance. And for 2,000 years, Christianity didn't know what the text meant. Amazingly, probably just a few hundred meters from where Christ met the Syrophoenician woman, the Lebanese woman, there stood an inn. And that inn burnt down one day, and all the stones collapsed. And it wasn't till about 80, 90 years ago that they excavated that inn. And they found the remains of a chest. And in there, there were some tablets. And there, simultaneously, they discovered on papyrus down in Egypt was the explanation to what hypostasis meant. And this text will leap to life because hypostasis means title deeds. And when you read the text, now faith is the title deeds of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen, it comes to life. Many years ago, my wife and I wanted to buy a house. And the teacher working for the church wasn't getting much money in those days. We had two small children and I went to the bank and asked for a loan. He didn't really laugh at me, but I knew he was. And he said, you're not earning enough money to pay off a loan. We wanted $12,000. And if you think that's not much, <clears throat> it was an awful lot then. And I got smart. I went to the conference treasurer and I said, can you give me a letter of introduction to the conference bank? Because we need a loan. We want a house. Now, I'm telling a story. Half of it is dead true. At some stage, I start to tell whoppers tell me when I'm starting to tell the whopper I went to the bank gave him the letter and he looked and he said well yes the conference is uh, one of our big uh, customers and of course you can have a loan he said I uh, trust <laughs> you've had a bad life um, <laughs> a bad experience I mean to say um, he uh, he, hadn't, he was telling the truth. He said, look, uh, I know that we'll trust you. And he said, look, I have such a high regard for people who work for the Seventh-day Adventist Church that you can have the loan, you can go into the house, and because we know that you will pay, we will give you the title deeds right away. Lie! We never saw... We never laid eyes on the title deeds to our little house in Alton Road until we had paid every last rotten, miserable cent. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He says, by faith, I will give you the title deeds to the kingdom of heaven right now because I have risked so much I love you guys so much that to get you into the kingdom of heaven, here are your title deeds. 
to your house in heaven. You know, this week we've been talking about fusion, that final connection with God. A couple of years ago, I was in the Solomon Islands, and I had a series of meetings to take in a hall that was the largest hall in the Solomons, could fit about 4,000 people. And on the last night, I was talking about Elijah and his sacrifice. Uh, and, and the fact that he sacrificed everything to follow God. He was a Tishbite and he went, left his home and he stood before God's people up on Mount Carmel and with an incredible act of courage, he thanked God as he prayed for answering his prayer and bringing fire before the fire had even come. Now, God looked down at that moment and he said, for the courage that you've just shown, you are not going to see death. You will be translated to the kingdom of heaven. And when the fire came down, the people just called out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And then, for no real reason, it wasn't in my notes, I said, is there anybody here in this great big room that was packed, who is prepared to stand up by themselves and to yell out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And there was dead and complete silence because the Solomon Islands are very modest people. And I was just about to say, well, to myself, it was a good try. And this young man jumped up. He was right up the back. And he yelled out in a voice that just covered the whole room, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And I said to him, young man, I want to talk to you afterwards. I said, because God is going to give you a double portion of his spirit for what you have just done. He came to me. He said, later, it was the first time he had talked to a white man face to face. He was so shy. And uh, his father had run away. His mother was trying to support him and his sister. And I said, God is going to bless your life because of what you have done, because you have shown the courage. And I said, God has asked me to give you the double portion. He was in year 11. And I said, I'm going to pay your fees until you finish school. He's now in year 12. How much? $8,000 a year. But fortunately, Australian dollar is worth a lot more than the Solomon Island dollars. <laughs> it's one to eight. And so the sacrifice for us has not been great. But the benefits to him and to his little sister at school have been enormous. He has had that courage. And tonight... I would be remiss if I didn't make an appeal to you. And the appeal is in the form of a card. And the card is there at your desk, at, at your seat on the ends. I'm wondering if you could uh, just pass them along. And if you haven't got pencils, the pencil is there. Through the week, those two hands have come closer and closer until the fingers touched. But now we look at God 
And he has a grip on our hands he will never let go. We would have to will him to let go to make him let go. And the card is quite simple. Fusion with Jesus. Tick the boxes which relate to you. This week I felt connected to God. That's simple. I can tick that one. I want to join a small group of Bible study meetings. There are the days. Or I want to demonstrate my connection with God through baptism. All I want you to do, and it takes a little act of courage, is to get up after you've written your name, and I'm going to be first here, and I'm going to tick the box, and I want you to come over and just drop it there and go back to your seat. I want you to pray for your friends who might be on the Valley of Decision. The other night we talked about the young man who had never met Jesus if it wasn't for his friends. And I know there are many people here who have made the decision to follow Jesus. But there are others who are just saying, is it really the way to go? Those of you that I spoke to at the beginning of the week who may be atheists or agnostics, it is just not my prayer, just but everybody here that you will have felt a call from God. Surely you must know that He exists. Surely we must know that He is besotted with us and He loves us. Having said that, I'm going to leave it at that. I'm going to sit down while we have some special music because I don't want to carry on like a tele-evangelist and give you the guilts because you're not coming forward. But I would just love to see you come forward. I would love to see the Holy Spirit say, fill in the card, drop it there and go back to your seat. God bless you.